It reminds me of the movie with Jim Carrey called Liar Liar, when he wants to so bad say no, but he says yes. And I think the same thing when we get scared because we don't want to tell our clients or our customers no. So our no becomes a yes. And the contract will allow that contract to be the no man while you're still the happy business person that's working with them. Welcome to the Life Story Coach Podcast, where you'll hear interviews, tips, and advice on the craft and business of personal history and life story writing with your host, Amy Woods Butler. Hello and welcome to the show. Before we jump into today's interview, I wanted to say a quick thank you to everyone who has signed up to be on the upcoming directory. If you haven't heard about it yet, I'll be putting up a directory of personal historians and life story professionals, so writers, video people, people who do audio, anybody who's working in the field of life story, and that directory is probably going to go up sometime after the holidays. It's free. All you need to do is fill out a form telling me the information that will go on as your listing, and you can also send a photo as well. You'll find links to that on today's show notes, thelifestorycoach.com, episode 43, and I believe I have a link on the main page of the website as well. So again, thanks to all of you who've already sent in your listing information. We've got people from all over the US, people from Canada, the UK, New Zealand. Um, It's not too late to get in on it. Uh, I just ask that you have me your information before the end of the year, which is now 2018. So thanks for sending it in. And now it's time for our interview. Hi guys, this is Amy, and this is the show where we talk about growing our life story business. I like giving bios of all of my guests, but today's is a doozy. Rachel Branke is our guest today, and I almost don't know where to start with her intro because Rachel is a lawyer, she's a business consultant, a photographer, a podcaster, an author, a Team USA athlete, and she's the mother of five. And as an entrepreneur herself, Rachel helps other entrepreneurs be efficient, strategic, and legally protected. She's worked with creatives all over the world. So I'm very happy to have her on the show. Welcome, Rachel. I'm I'm glad to have you here. Thanks for having me. I always cringe when people lead off with lawyer because then the audience is probably like, ugh, a lawyer. <laughs> and I'm not like normal lawyers. <laughs> well, I kind of, yeah, I think that probably comes through already just in your bio. I so don't click away, guys. If you're listening, you're like, oh, gosh, a lawyer. I, I'll try to make it fun, I promise. Uh, well, yeah, and what I what I didn't get into is that well, one of the things that I want us to talk about are um, business entities. And yes, it can be incredibly dry, but it's also the kind of stuff that if you're new to the world of owning your own business, yeah. that stuff is just scary and overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's one of the things that I want to talk about. Um, I remember when I started my business, which is called The Story Scribe. So I, I write people's books um, who don't want to write their own books, but they want to have something to give to their kids and their grandkids. And I started it back in 2010. I had never owned my own business before. And luckily, I did find a here in Kansas City, they have a um, small business startup mm-hmm. um, kind of, uh, it's a place that you can go that's run by, I believe, the city, and they'll give you advice. Um, but even having that, I, I felt like, you know, like I was barely keeping my head above water. So mm. let's let's kick it off and start with with that. For people who are brand new to owning their own business, what should be some of the top priorities that they're looking at? 
Yeah. So going into business, you know, none of us ever knows if we're going to make it. So oftentimes we have these apprehension to take these steps. So I want to try to convince you, not as a lawyer, but to show you as a fellow entrepreneur, as someone who also has a lot going on in my personal life, as many of you guys do as well, that when you're doing business, you think it's separate from your life. But when you start engaging in business activities, and if you haven't taken steps to insulate and separate out your personal from your business. And this could be legal. This could be simple calendaring. This could just be down to sharing the counter space where you throw your laptop to work (laughs) work from home, right? You want to try to segment out everything you can as much as possible. And oftentimes the, what you don't know, what you don't know paralyzes you. And that is how can I separate it out so that everything is protected and separate from one another? And I, like I said, I share this as someone, not just a lawyer, because I actually got into my entrepreneurial journey not as a lawyer. That came almost actually in the most recent, kind of in the end, if you will. I was working other types of businesses. I actually started with a fashion apparel shop which is totally funny because I'm not fashionable at all. I don't, it just intrigued me and I got into that. And even then though, and I share this to say, guys, I had no idea what an LLC was at the time. So if you're listening and as I'm talking, don't freak out thinking, oh my gosh, I have to do it all right from the beginning or I've been trucking along and not doing it at all. Now is the time you can take the steps. So get your pen and paper out because when you are going into business, you want to, like we just said, separate everything out. Well, there's multiple ways that you can protect your personal stuff and protect your business. And it's really easy. Three simple things. One is business structure, like being an LLC or a corporation, which we're going to dig really into. It's having proper like contracts or services agreements all the way down to just simply website terms on your website. Things like that that can really help protect you from liability. And lastly is having insurance. And under insurance can be a couple of things. It can be like liability insurance, especially if you're offering services to people. Um, Most of us are also going to need equipment insurance because we're using laptops or cameras to take photographs for our marketing or whatever it is that you're using equipment-wise. You want to have it insured because oftentimes that does not fall under homeowner's insurance uh, renter or owner's policies. Oftentimes business stuff is excluded. And you don't want to be stuck. So, okay, right there. That is something I have never once thought of. Liability insurance, I've thought of, and I've actually discarded the idea of having that because I go into people's homes um, to do to do the interviews. They do not come to me, and that may be something that you might be correcting me on that. But but so I always assume that I need liability insurance. But I've never once thought about having the equipment insured. And and you're right. I mean, if I if something happened and I lost my my desktop and my laptop and um, you know scanners printers I have a very big nice printer I've I've never I didn't even realize that you could have that kind of thing insured yeah and you know it's unfortunate because you may end up be having a loss which is unfortunate in itself but then either being denied or the insurance company may pay out on that equipment because they don't know that it was used for business but maybe later it was discovered technically that if your policy excludes it. Now, I think that's something we need to be clear about. There are policies out there that are personal policies, homeowners or renter, that will cover business stuff. So if yours does, that's okay. But if it doesn't and you've claimed it, 
and it's discovered that's considered fraud um, oh, because okay. you violated a contractual agreement and it just, it, it's not good. So that's one of the areas that I feel like you can focus in on the proper insurance and also having the proper savings, you know, savings along the way. So you don't have to necessarily rely on insurance because insurance isn't foolproof. And actually these three things that I just mentioned for protecting a business isn't foolproof. Being an LLC, it's not bulletproof. Having your proper like services agreements when you're hired, they're not. It, all of these are to work like layers. I always visualize it like on the movie Independence Day with Will Smith, you know, when they're shooting the alien spaceship and you see the force fields, light up blue, right? Whenever the stuff hits. And that's how I imagine these three protection shields to be around my business and around my personal stuff. So that is the goal for me is to protect the business. And then obviously within that, going back to what your initial question was, with your business entity structure that you choose of like an LLC or corporation, you can further protect yourself because then it separates out your personal stuff from your business stuff. And you guys will notice I didn't give the option of sole proprietor. Uh, as an attorney, and maybe my CYA here should be, always talk to your local attorney, but I have, well, let me, let me not misspeak on this, but I am fairly certain I have never, ever, ever worked with a small business owner that I thought would be okay as a sole proprietor. Um, oftentimes I'll hear people say, it's so funny because I actually was just having this conversation with someone right before coming on here. They were like, oh, well, the LLC rate is so expensive for my state. I'm just going to be a sole proprietor and pay for liability insurance. The unfortunate thing about that is, like we said, not all insurance policies cover everything. It's not foolproof. You want to have as many of those shields around you as possible. Uh, so well, and I'm going to interrupt there because I think probably there's a fair number of people who don't know the difference between sole proprietorship and LLC. So can you just kind of uh, give a a brief rundown of what each of those entails? Yes, I jumped the gun on that. I got so excited. So when you guys are going out and setting yourself up like a business, maybe you've not taken any steps to do anything. You've just put yourself out there to be in business. That means you're operating as what's called a sole proprietorship right now. I want you to visualize a sand bucket and you're going to put in that one bucket, one bucket, you're going to put your house in your car, all your savings, all of your income, but then also add in all your business assets. And then what happens if a client or a customer comes along and kicks over that one bucket, everything falls out. Okay. Everything is then being touched or it can be picked up and carried off, however you want to visualize this, right? So sole proprietor, there is no division between your personal assets and your business assets. And before I get into the LLC and corporation, which divide out into two buckets, as I'm sure you guys saw that was coming, they oftentimes people will say to me, well, I don't have any personal assets. I just rent. I don't have a car or whatever it is. And I say to them, are you breathing? Yes. Are you living? Yes. Are you making money? Yes. Then you have assets. Because if you're making money, that is a potential asset. That is an asset. Um, that And that could be potentially touched should there ever be a legal issue that arises. And I always say, you never have an issue until you have an issue. You could be in business 20 years. You could be in business a minute. And you could just run into the wrong person. You could make a mistake. They could just be unhappy people. Life just happens. So for me, I don't want you guys to be stuck with someone being able to pick up or knock over that one single bucket, which is what you are as a sole proprietor, okay? 
we are fortunate. And as Amy was saying at the, uh, a little bit ago, we are fortunate there are places you can go to get this information about LLCs and corporations. And there's a reason for that. Because they're not as inaccessible, I think, as they're made out to be, or just because they're so foreign that us as entrepreneurs become so scared. Again, I was there. I was scared. I didn't know the differences. I wasn't a lawyer. I had to seek out this information on my own. So, sole proprietor, let's take it off the table. We don't even want to deal with that because I don't want you guys to become personally liable for anything. I want Mm. if something happens, which I don't want anything to happen, but it's life. If something happens, I want it to be in this context. And this works for LLC, which is limited liability company or a corporation. You have two buckets. One bucket, you put all your personal stuff in. Your second bucket, you put all your business stuff in. And the goal is for only, well, hopefully to have neither of them touched, but the goal is for the clients or the customer, whoever has an issue with you, legal issue that is, that they can only touch the business bucket. So just to restate this, if for some reason you get sued Mm -hmm. and you have an LLC or a corporation, which I don't think probably corporation is going to apply to very many listeners, but if you do have an LLC, right, then they, the only thing, um, the only assets that they could touch as, um, that they could be awarded as damages would be, would be coming from your business and not your retirement savings account, not your house, um, Um, not anything else that, that is part of your, your private bucket, correct? Right. And and this is talking about like business, regular business activities. You can't walk into someone's house, Amy, and punch them in the face and expect for your LLC to take the, (laughs) right? (laughs) (laughs) You know, you have to, maybe you, maybe it was, you missed a deadline on something or you just didn't deliver in the end, you know, those sorts of activities. Yeah. The goal is for just that business bucket to be the one that's touched. Now there is a way it's called piercing the corporate veil. And there is a way that even though you're an LLC, um, which like you said, yeah, most people listening are probably going to be an LLC unless you intend to have like investors or board of directors or a bunch of different hands in the pot. Most individual or, you know, small business entrepreneurs really would benefit just from the LLC structure. Um, But in order, the government gives you this. It's not really a simple, well, it is, but it isn't. Let me explain Most states, it's a couple hundred dollars to file. Most of the forms are fill in the blank. But the government doesn't want it to make make it that easy for you. They want you to kind of, quote unquote, work for the limited liability benefit, right? And what I mean by that is they want you to treat it. Now that you have set up an entity, remember, we're going from one bucket to two buckets. Now that you've created an entity separate for yourself, you need to continue to treat it separate from yourself. This is as simple as separate bank accounts. In fact, money, you always hear the phrase, follow the money, and that's where you'll find everything. And that's one of the quickest and easiest ways that people can pierce the corporate veil is by depositing all their LLC funds into their own personal business account instead of, I mean, I'm sorry, into their personal account instead of to a business account and then paying it out. So happy that you're talking about piercing the corporate veil because I, I saw something on your website about that. And to be honest, I've never even heard that term. I, I think I know the concept, but I've never heard it as that term. And it's such a wonderful metaphor. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I, I, it, brought to, it brought to mind all of these different images and I'm sure none of them are correct. So anyways, that, that I just wanted to <laughs> <laughs> well, We can say piercing the alien ship 
<laughs> force field or whatever. And that's really what's happening is then you're basically opening up that force field and letting people come through. You're letting them reach into your body, uh, right? And it's through your actions. But honestly, you know, that sounds scary. Guys, it's simple. You file the LLC, you keep your money separate, you sign in the name of the LLC, like your leases, your domains, your hosting, you put everything into the LLC bucket because that's the goal, right? And it really is easy Um, You just have to be knowledgeable. And now you guys are. It relatively is um, easy to maintain your LLC protections. Mm -hmm. And and then with LLC, um, is it is it still the case that when you go to set up an LLC, well, for one thing, do you need a lawyer? Um, that would be one question to do it. And then the second question is, do uh, this might be on a state by state basis, but is there something where you have to be, um, you have to take out a notice in a newspaper mm-hmm. for a certain amount of time? Okay. So starting with, well, all states pretty much it's relatively the same process. You go and you file typically what's called an articles of organization. And that is, and when I say file it, you print off their PDF, you fill it out, you turn it in. Yes, that can be fairly straightforward to do. However, the other steps that are required, which are state specific, is where you could fall into the trap of needing a lawyer. Um, so for example, many states also require that you have what's called an operating agreement even if you're the only person that's in the LLC. And this is a lawyer-drafted document, um, and it talks about how the operations are run. It's operating agreement. It's it's talking exactly the operations of your business. They're a bit more important when you have, like, multiple people in the LLC, who's paying in what, who's going to pay out what, what happens to the debts if the LLC is no more, those sorts of things. Um, but even if you don't have a partner, your state may still require – that you have an operating agreement and you either file it with the state or you keep it on file. So like, for example, in Virginia, I file the articles of organization. Then I have to have my, my operating agreement. I don't actually have to submit that to the state, but I have to keep it in my principal place of business. And it is subject to be an audited. Um, and so, and also the same thing when it goes to the notice in the paper depends on the location. Some places require you put a notice in the paper and then submit evidence of that notice to the state. Other Mm. places just have you submit the um, notice in the paper and then you just affirm or say that you did those steps. So I know I probably just made it sound really overwhelming, but it really isn't. I promise. My question about that is if you do not do that, those, those two things, does that nullify the legality of the LLC? It can. Yes. Um, and so actually there's a couple of things. If you don't do all the proper requirements, your LLC can be canceled on you by the state or it can be found to not be in existence. So you want to do all the steps to make sure that it is proper and legal. We're trying to get that force field around us, right? But you got to make sure that you complete the circle of it all the way around you. Um, but yes, it's, you know, oh, that was the other point I was going to make. Another thing to consider too, and this is state by state, like Texas, you create an LLC, it's perpetual, which means that as long as you file your yearly report, And you don't have to like renew it. You don't have to pay for it anymore. Whereas in Virginia, we have to pay for it every year. And if you miss a payment or you miss some sort of filing deadline, and again, it's not as scary. I'll tell you the answer here in a second. But if you miss one of those and your LLC lapses and and let's say you enter into contracts during that time or something arises, 
you may not have those liability protections. Now, savvy lawyers, and we've done this before, we've been able to revive an LLC, but don't bank on that at all because it's not a surefire thing. And you just, you don't, if you've already taken all the steps to set up the LLC, just make sure you maintain it. Like what Mm -hmm. I do is simple. You follow the steps that the state gives you and then you put it on your calendar. Don't rely on the state to send you a notification, although they do. Put it on your calendar if you need to renew or do documents every year. So when I file and set it up, I just automatically put it into my Google calendar to repeat every year about a couple weeks before it's due so that I make sure I have time to do it. And it could be filing the report. It could be paying the yearly fee if your state even has a yearly fee. Uh, But overall, it relatively, those sorts of things, the, the state almost feeds it to you. Really, the only things in here that we've talked about that you would kind of have to figure out would be the drafting of the operating agreement, which a lawyer can do for you. And most will do it on a flat rate and very low cost. Um, what was the other thing? Oh, and the notice. Obviously, the state can't go and do the Like if you have to do a publication notice in a newspaper, <laughs> they can't do that for you. But oftentimes, they'll have guidelines telling you how to do it. You know, this LLC stuff's not a secret. Um, so I, let me just recap the steps real quick. You're looking at a document, probably called the Articles of Organization. And then you want to draft your operating agreement and see if you need to file it or if you need to just keep it on hand. You need to check to see if there's any public notice requirements, such as posting it in a newspaper. A lot of, a lot, a lot of states are going away from that now. That's kind of, although I think New York still has it. Um, it seems so, so archaic, doesn't it? <laughs> well, the law is very archaic. It's very behind the times. Um, like copyright law identifies phonographs. It never even has contemplated <laughs> CDs, let alone digital media now. So, yeah, it... Um, what was it? Articles in your organization, operating agreement, if you have any publication notice, and then your yearly reports or filings. And it really is that straightforward. Mm-hmm. And just to throw it in there, because it is a recurring annual thing. So you're talking about setting up the entity and, and keeping it up to date. Um, but then there's also the business license, right? Which is going to be through the municipality or the city that you live in. And just thinking of that because you were talking about recurring events on the calendar and that's one thing that I have you know you know you have to pay your your business license fee every year and you have to post it in the place of business if you even have one it depends on the activities that you're doing um, some places they <laughs> it's so funny because I'm kind of like one of those mixed weird birds like they don't really know what I fall under so like the business <laughs> license office will always say sure but then like they don't know like telling me I need it but then they don't know what to do with me um, so just ask them and they will tell you if you qualify or not I think the biggest lesson you could take away here is get an LLC and maintain it and then go and find out if you need to have a business license if you need to remit sales tax My rule of thumb is ask them, get advisement, let the government be the one to tell you no. Don't you tell yourself no and then you get in trouble. That, especially when that comes to taxes, that does not work well. Uh, But definitely, yes, business license, like you said, is one. If you even need to have one, if it needs to be renewed, um, and sales tax, if you offer any sorts of services or products that are taxable in your state. Right. And I know as far as, so I, I operate out of Missouri and I know as far as Missouri, um, and 
I also am not a lawyer, but this is to the best of my understanding, and this is how I've been operating for years. Um, when I do a service agreement with somebody, I separate out the big chunk of the work, the bulk of the cost um, that I'll be invoicing to them, and that is the doing the interviews and doing the writing and the editing. And then separate from that is the br- book production cost, because from what I understand it, um, the service that I provide is not taxable for sales tax, mm-hmm. but any any books that I actually procure for them, that is taxable. So I have to charge them the tax and then I have to once a year, I have to go, well, however you have it set up, it could be once a year or it could be multiple times a year. Then I have to remit that to the state of Missouri. Mm-hmm. Um, but that probably I'm guessing varies by state as well. Yeah. And this is a good time where we can talk about the differences in hiring a lawyer or a CPA. I look at both of these professions as another form of insurance. Um, And I'll get to, I'll explain that here in a second. But for me, like lawyers really should be doing your advisement on liability protection, kind of like we've done about here, talking about LLCs and that kind of things. CPAs should not be setting up LLCs um, unless they're a lawyer, Uh, but they should be advising about your tax benefits as a structure. So you need to look at having a lawyer and a CPA who works kind of in tandem or parallel to each other uh, and just know that each of them is for a specific thing. Like your question you just asked me, I know enough about sales tax stuff to be dangerous, but I don't advise on it because that's not really my scope of work. I let mm-hmm. the CPAs do that and I help to maintain the rest of the liability stuff. Um, now, I, the reason I say that having professional services and just putting this into your cost of doing business, don't look at it as another expenditure. Just put it into your line item, pass the cost to your clients or your customers. But I look at these professional services, even for myself, as an insurance policy in this sense. Me, I'm a sprite individual, I think. I mean, I like to think so. I know how to do tax returns. I know how to do my taxes. I know enough of the tax code. I've read it. I could probably do it. But A, I don't want to do it. B, there's a higher chance of me messing it up. And then what happens when I mess it up? If I have a CPA that messes it up, they're on the hook for any late fees and fines. I also then have recourse against them for malpractice. If I do it, Who's on the hook for those fees and fines and who has to fix it or pay a CPA to then to fix it? Me. Um, and I think the same thing when it comes to lawyers uh, is that lawyers are also, I'm not saying go hire a lawyer just so you can sue them if something happens, but you're more likely to get a better product because they're the professionals. They do continuing education, but also so that if something does happen, it's not solely on your shoulders. If somebody's new to the business and they want to start off right, what's the procedure? I mean, do you just call a lawyer? Are, are there lawyers who specialize in this and they'll give flat rate fees? I mean, because anytime you talk about hiring a lawyer, it can be pretty scary pretty quickly. Oh, you know what? I, and that's why I said from the very beginning, I hate being let off and she's a lawyer because I'm afraid people are going to lump me into others because I recognize that our profession and CPAs, I think, but more so lawyers have this, um, we have a reputation that goes before us. There's a reason there's jokes about us, right? And I'm encouraged because I think the industry is changing, but it is scary. It is foreign. You think it's going to be a lot of money. And so my tips in finding a good CPA and a good lawyer, first of all, start asking around to other business owners that you know and see what how they feel 
feel about the, those that they work with. I think I think you can find quality small business lawyer, and that's probably what you're looking for. Is business lawyer is the tagline um, or the services that they provide? And then you kind of got to drill it down to see exactly what they provide, because sometimes they use that terminology and they don't really work with small businesses. They may only file LLCs, but they can't do anything more. So look at their services and see are they going to be able to carry you through kind of the whole relationship together? Because you are creating a relationship. You know, we have clients who will come to us and they think they're just coming for a one-off LLC, but I sit down with them and maybe it's because I have the business consulting side. We talk about their business plan. We talk about where they're going, why they're going there, how they're going to get there because A, I want them to be successful because that will also make me successful, but because I want, I need to be able to see where they're going in order to avoid legal pitfalls. And so I share that to say, that the best attorneys and the best CPAs that I've ever worked with personally, because I've hired my own, are those that have the same approach. Um, They aren't just order takers like at a restaurant who say, oh, I'll do your LLC for 200 bucks. Here you go. Be on your way. Um, Yeah, that gives you a low hanging fruit. But who's to say the LLC filing was even done right? You know, you really want to look at is developing a relationship with them. Um, I can't say for one way or the other if it's flat rate or hourly. It just really depends on the firm. Everyone has their own approaches. I know for us, we do small business stuff in Texas, Washington, and Virginia. And for those states specifically, we do flat rates on them because we've done them so long. We already know how much time it's going to take unless you have like a really weird business structure set up. And we talk about in the initial consultation. Uh, But yeah, so like going in, just, you know, set aside in your line item, in your cost of doing your business, save it up and invest in doing it, you know, and that's whether it's the LLC, it's getting contracts drafted, having a lawyer review things. Um, It's invaluable to have that safety net. Um, It is more costly if you wait to create a relationship with a lawyer after you've already had a problem. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, that makes sense. mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Well, okay. So you, you started off by saying the three things and, um, and now I can't remember which each of the three were. So business entity. So choosing between LLC or corporation, then having your proper legal documents in place, like services agreements, website terms, privacy policies, that sort of stuff. And then the insurance, you know, your liability and your equipment. And you could also drill down even into like disability, um, insurance and that kind of stuff, but definitely liability equipment are the two main ones, you guys, especially if you're new or into this little checklist I've given you, those are two good ones to start with. Okay, let's talk a little bit about service agreements or contracts. If, um, If we're assuming that anybody out there who's working as a life story professional is entering into an agreement with a client, and and just to keep in mind, Rachel, that most people that hire us have never done hired a person like us before mm-hmm. and they don't know anybody else who has so it's 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 almost like we're reinventing you know for for them they're reinventing the wheel yeah. each time or you know they're getting into foreign territory it's not like when you've you know you've bought a car before you've mm-hmm. bought a house before you know what's coming so how important is it to have a contract? Non-negotiable. I think you guys need to have one. And before I go into my reasons why, 
I can already hear the objections of people. I don't want to do it. My clients will freak out. How do I explain it? You have to understand that contracts are more than just legal documents. Yes. One, they do set the legal relationship in which we're going to walk through some of the things that you can't get, the protections you can't receive without a contract. But also, and I think just as importantly, contracts can also be um, expectation setting tools for you Mm -hmm. because everything's all in one place. There's no miscommunication. Everything is clear and on paper and also a customer service tool. Um, I always tell people that contracts are, they're there to be, how do I say this? As As entrepreneurs, we get scared and oftentimes we are afraid to lose a sale or tell a client no, even if we formulated our own policies, right? And then when a client tr- keeps asking for more and more and more and more, you're just like, ah, what do I do? Well, having the contract there can allow you to do a couple of things. It can allow you to offer customer service. So for example, let's say your client misses a payment and because oh, their mom passed away or their dog got sick or something like that. And you're like, I'm a human. I want to allow them to um, you know, not pay a late fee. They can pay me next week. Having a contract and being able to say, you know, your payment was due on Monday. I am human. I understand life happens. Don't worry about the late fee. Don't worry about being late. Just get it to me by X date. That allows for you, A, to offer customer service, but having a contract, it helps to keep that structure so it's not going to be a continued of, oh, I'll pay you next week, I'll pay you next week, I'll pay you next week, and you get used, right? You know, it, But you're able to have that legal structure and the legal bones in place but allow you to offer customer service. Another thing I love that contracts can do, especially for the type of services you guys are providing, is it gives you... It reminds me of the movie uh, with Jim Carrey called Liar Liar when he wants to so bad say no, but he says yes. And I think the same thing when we get scared because we don't want to tell our clients or our customers no. So our no becomes a yes. And the contract will allow that contract to be the no man while you're still the happy business person that's working with them. For example, mm-hmm. maybe they're asking, I want X amount more revisions, even though we didn't agree to it. Or I want um, you to add 50 bazillion more chapters than we agreed on. You can say, per my contract, it was agreed that we're going to do X, Y, and Z. And it kind of deflects a bit off of you instead of you saying, I only agree to doing 20 chapters. You can say, well, the contract was for 20 chapters. It's mm-hmm. just kind of a psychology thing. Um, I'm all about psychology. I love it. But it I love how contracts can do that for you. So don't see sitting here thinking, oh my gosh, it's a legal document. She's going to tell me all the legal reasons we need to have it. I am. But remember, it's customer service and it allows the contract to be a no man for you while you still get to be the, because you guys develop relationships with your clients right. and it becomes hard to say no. Well, and one of the reasons that I've heard um, people argue against having contracts in this kind of business is because our relationships with our clients, with the storyteller, the person that is sitting down and telling us the story, it's so unique and so incredibly mm-hmm. personal. You know, they're, they're telling us things that they have very often never told other people, at least, you know, there's going to be a story or two that comes up that they all say, I've never told this to anybody. And sometimes they'll even say, I don't want this in the book, but they still feel compelled to tell you. So it's a very tight, intimate relationship. 
And I think people are a little afraid when you inject that sort of legalese contract speak into it, that it's going to harm that relationship. Now, I think if you do it at the very beginning, you know, like you're saying, um, then hopefully it never even has to come up again. Unless I actually think it's even more so because of what you're doing, you need to have it. Because um, you have to start looking at what the contents of the contract are. I mean, we're going to go through the normal things of like payment, when you're going to deliver, how you're going to deliver, what the output is, and all that sort of stuff. But even taking a step further, one thing that you just said, what happens if they end up telling you something that they don't want shared? Well, if you guys have that in the contract, it not only safeguards you, but it safeguards the client. And how I'm talking to you guys about this right now is exactly if your client has objections, you would explain it to them. This document is to protect you as much as it is to protect me. I mean, because what happens if you, the writer, does all the work, then the client skips off the sunset and never pays or vice versa. The client does all this paying and you guys never deliver. So it's a two-way street. I think that's a big thing of it's not only having a contract, it's what's in it, how you use it and how and knowing how to explain it is really important. And that is what can set the tone for the relationship. Now, let me give you a couple examples of, well, one in particular that like transcends all industries. I see this issue all the time. So there's things that you can't receive under, you can't receive unless it's contractually agreed to. If it's not written in law, you don't get it. For example, let's say you have set up to do this and you're going to offer these services in this product and the client ends up not paying. Maybe they've paid you know, 90% of it and you're waiting for the last 10%, right? But it's a good chunk of money. You've spent your time, you've poured into this for them and they haven't paid the last amount. When you go to sue them, well, I shouldn't say sue. I hate that. I, I just like that word. I shouldn't say that. Let's say you, you now have a claim against them and you want to press that claim because you are rightfully owed that money. If you go into court, there's... Well, not any states that I can think of. Inevitably, somebody will listen to this and send me an email, but no states that I can think of that I can go into court to press a claim against you for non-payment and receive attorney's fees unless it's in the contract. Has to be contractually agreed to. I can't just get it unless it's written in the law somewhere. In services contracts like this, typically it's not written in the law. I see this happen a lot, a lot, a lot. And actually, I work with other, a lot of creative types, not necessarily in this industry, but they do a lot of like personal services like you guys, very intimate style. And they're, everything's great until the client doesn't pay or the client has an issue. And so um, they will either draft up a little loose contract themselves because they want to save the money or they don't want to scare off their client. And then because they're not an attorney, they don't think something simple as like attorney's fees. Um, I had one most recently. It was about 20% was owed on the rest of the contract. And the client just wasn't paying it. Wasn't that they were unhappy. They just didn't want to pay it. And um, my client had to take them to um, court because they wouldn't pay the demands, you know, the communications and everything. And because their contract, <laughs> this is the client, this is what I was saying earlier. It costs you more to come to a lawyer after the fact. Hmm. My client, because they had drafted their own contract with their client, did not include something about attorney's fees, ended up spending as much 
on attorney's fees, trying to recover that um, balance that was owed to Oh, them. boy. Right. Which, right. You know, you get into this cost-benefit analysis, but also you just have to consider, had he had that two-sentence language in there, he would have recovered. And which is actually funny. Let me back up on the story a bit. He had inquired in February and said, what is it for you to review my contract? I've already self-written it out, which I do recommend you guys do that. Write out the things that you want to have included, then bring it to a lawyer. He had inquired and I said, oh, it'll probably be about five, $600 since you've already written a lot. I'm going to have to clean it up a little bit. And he goes, nope, that's too much. And then when he came back, ended up spending about six to $7,000 on attorney's fees um, that he would have received. Now, so look at the numbers. $500 would have saved him $6,000. <laughs> this is reminding me of what just happened to me a month ago where um, you know I, I live in Kansas City and we can buy insurance for our sewage line and our water line. Mm-hmm. And I thought, Oh gosh, why do I want to spend a hundred bucks? Well, so I just spent five thousand dollars to have a new water line put in. I mean, it's yep. it's the same, really. It's it's buying insurance in a way yeah. um, when you're when you're getting a really good solid contract. So I like your advice that we should write it out ourselves and then have somebody review it. And I guess again, it, we would probably look for somebody who is who dubs themselves a business lawyer for that. Is that correct? Yeah, definitely someone who's worked with this before that knows your, you know, recognizes and understands your industry a bit, um, which can be hard. You know, you can start by looking locally. Um, Those small business startup places like you were talking about, they're great to a point. They're not technically supposed to legally advise. So there's a lot of nuances and stuff. They're not going to be able to, they're not, most of them are not lawyers. And if they do have lawyers there, most are not supposed to be advising anyways. It's just kind of some guidance. And there is a distinction under the law Mm -hmm. for us. But uh, yeah, you know, it's hard. I wish, this is why I've been trying hard to get to know lawyers whenever I go to conferences, trying to gather lawyers' names in every state so I can try to recommend people because it is hard. Um, There's good lawyers or bad lawyers, just like there's any other profession. But that's why I think if you, you know, reach out, see what your, your local businesses who they're using, you know, really interview the lawyer. Don't let the inter- lawyer just interview you. You need to interview them. Ask them questions and get to know them. Because like we said before, it's going to be a relationship. So if you now knowing a little bit about this profession, this life story profession, it, um, are there any questions that come to mind that we would be asking somebody when we sit down with a new lawyer that we're potentially going to hire? Yeah, you know, and especially since you guys are creating intellectual property, you guys are creating a story, you're creating a book. Um, Now, I'm a little biased because I'm a business lawyer, but I also do intellectual property law, which is actually a very uncommon um, area of law, like trademarks and copyrights and stuff. A lot of people don't truly specialize in that. There's way more general business lawyers, which is fine. Each has their own place. But with you guys' situation and what you're talking about, some of the things that we need to identify also in the contract is who owns... Oh my gosh, I'm so glad you brought this up because this was a point I had jotted down earlier. Um, Who owns what is being created? Mm -hmm. Because under the law in the United States, unless you guys are like employees of your clients, which you're probably not, or unless it's in writing, you own all the intellectual property, all the copyrights to the stories you're creating. But what happens then if you have these 
your clients are wanting to turn around and sell the story, publish it, utilize it, license the rights to it for a movie or license it for X, Y, and Z. Technically, without any documentation, you, the writer, I mean, there's there's a little... Eh, little gray areas, but for the most part, you guys own the rights in that. The client, your client does not, Um, which can, and the only way that you can transfer that or spell out who has the right, the rights to it is through a contract. And so that's also where I come back to saying, I think having a biz lawyer, business lawyer, plus with intellectual property knowledge is really important for this type of work, especially when your output is intellectual property, need to have mm-hmm. something that can have the white gloves on there. Because um, I, I don't know, what is y'all's industry standard when you guys do this? What is the thought or what is the assumption? Is it an assumption that the client then owns the whole product in the end? Well, in general, Rachel, the client couldn't care less because they're what they want is a book or or a video or an audio for them to give to their family or friends. Okay. So the the issue, at least in my experience, it has never once come up who owns the copyright. Now, one thing I would say is that um, I have um, I've talked to colleagues before, and I know some think that the copyright should be going to the client in case there's any kind of um, uh, libel suits mm-hmm. or, if, you know, once the book is out there, mm-hmm. in case somebody says, oh, wait, you misrepresented me. And um, and as the copyright holder, from what I understand, they are the ones then that are in the hot seat. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's exactly correct or if it even changes depending on where you're at. Well, you know, and it, it copyright's inherently federal. There is state stuff, but we're going to focus on co- on the federal stuff. So it's all three of the United States. Another thing you have to consider is the inverse. Let's say that the writer is the one who decides, and they get savvy because they listen to this episode, and they go, oh, I own the copyright. That means I actually have the rights to reproduce this. I have the rights to license this to Hollywood. Since the client didn't have the copyrights transferred to them, or didn't have it in writing any sorts of restriction to the writer, the writer can relatively, relatively do what they want with it. And I would think that that would make clients extremely uncomfortable knowing that it's their personal story. Um, Now, I know many of you probably aren't going to do that, but by law, you could. You could go and sell the rights if you are the copyright holder to that. Mm. Yeah. And I think, again, this is where that whole trust issue comes up. I would hope that any life story writer out there would be conscientious enough not to do anything like that. I know that in my services agreement, I have it written in that I will retain one copy of any book produced just to show as a sample to potential clients. And I say that verbally. I I, I just had to... um or I just got to deliver a hundred books to a client yesterday. Um, and, you know, we've been working on his book for about a year. The books finally came in. I brought them yesterday and I reminded him um, because, you know, it's been a year since we've talked about it. I said, you know, I, I purchased a copy for myself. So I have one copy. I won't ever loan it out to anybody, but if it's okay with you, I would like to be able to show it to people if they're thinking about hiring me, because that is my, you know, that's, that's the only thing that we can show to potential clients to, mm-hmm. to, 
have them see that we can do the job that we're promising. And he was perfectly fine with that, as has been everybody except for one client. He specifically told me he does not want me showing it to anybody. And I'm, I'm, I'm fine with that. Mm -hmm. But that is very much just sort of a gentleman's agreement. You know, that's, that's based on a handshake. Um, So, but you're saying that if we want to really let the clients know, especially, well, whether they are thinking about it or not, if we have that written into the contract, then that's providing them some safeguards and us some safeguards, depending on, you know, how we work. Lots of safeguards. Like take, for example, the the thing that you just said about that gentleman, you could put in there an NDA so that he understands that. And there's an actionable item for him at that point, if you do breach that. And now obviously we don't want to be drafting completely against ourselves, but we want to balance that with our clients, the clients feeling comfortable. You said an NDA, MDA. What oh, is that? I'm sorry, the non-disclosure. I'm, I, I forget. Whoa. I apologize. Non-disclosure agreements, um, in order to make sure that everything is non-disclosed. You know, especially if they're super private and don't want it to be distributed. That's another option as well. You know, it's funny as we talk through this. There's a lot more reasons for the client to want a contract than probably for you guys. Um, I mean, in the context of what you were just talking about, not only is a non-disclosure agreement, you know, really prudent to have, but maybe even transferring the copyright to the individual whose story it is, and they can license you back a the limited rights to show the book or maybe a chapter, not the whole thing, you know, things that they approve. So like there's a whole, it's not an all or nothing. It's not, I get to do everything with it and show everyone or on the other spectrum, I don't get to show anybody. I mean, obviously you're going to negotiate that. You're going to go with the comfort level. The goal is to maintain the relationship, right? You know, that is really what is most important here. But within that, you've got a little lot of wiggle room and there's a lot of legal supports that can really help you and your um, client feel very comfortable yeah, maybe some of this might be a little overkill if it's a, I want to say, I say average, but I'm sure none of these stories are average or they wouldn't be written. But I'm saying that in comparison to you having a politician or movie star come along, that's when you know you're definitely going to need to be aware of services agreements, non-disclosure agreements, transfer of copyright, um, licensing, and that those sorts of, and those are, that was a four, four quick checklists for you guys to jot down in case you ever do run into a situation where clients are asking these types of questions. Okay. State those four once one more time. Yeah, so people so can jot them down. Services agreement, which I think everyone should have a services agreement really if for nothing then to outline like payment and delivery and that sort of stuff. Um, the second was uh, non-disclosure or any type of confidentiality type that you want to have. Um, what were the other two now? Uh, <laughs> oh, copyright transfer. Oh, copyright transfer and licensing. So who's going to retain the copyright? Because uh, fundamentally, it's the writer that is retaining it and without any written agreement. And then if there's any licensing going to be done, you know, one of the things that I could see, the classic example that I could see arise out of this would be there's nothing in a service agreement or no service agreement exists. Client gives a story, the writer writes the story, writer by default is retaining the copyright, but the client doesn't know anything. They didn't listen to this podcast. They don't know anything about copyright. And next thing you know, they decide they're going to be an entrepreneur and they're going to sell their own books with their story. 
technically under the law, the writer has rights to stop that client from mm. selling it. And that's where it can get a little tricky. Um, you know, most writers may not care, but technically under the law, that's infringement. Um, if you really wanted to get down to the actual application of the law. Hmm. Yeah, it's all interesting. There's so many elements to it. Um, when you're talking about copyright and, and, um, and then something that we didn't really talk about, but you know, the potential for liable suits, mm -hmm. things like that. There's, there's a lot of layers to this. We're short on time. I wish that we could talk more about it and maybe we can on a future date. I wanted to talk about this. I don't think we really have time right now, but just, just tell people a little bit about the books that you have written because I was just bowled over. You know, usually if you, if you hear that somebody is a business consultant and they say they're an author. Well, they've written some, you know, business consultant book. Um, but your books, at least the ones that I saw, um, your children's books, they're just, they're beautiful. And I think that what you do with them is a little bit, uh, if they're based on your story, which I'm assuming they are, it's a little bit like um, doing life stories. So really briefly in the, in the last couple minutes that we have, can you just explain to people what you've done with that? So I have multiple books. I have the children's books are which are really my personal project. They help to supplement. They're just an asset to what I provide to my audiences under the different blogs that I have. Like I have one for photographers, one for triathletes. And so those are just kind of novelty, fun books. They're all based on my kids. They are telling my own story. Um, and so those are really fun to work on. I do have some business books that are, here's how to set up a business, how, here's how to do this. But if you look at it, I have two of those versus five, almost six of the children's books. Which do you think I prefer to do? <laughs> yeah, I guess we know where your heart lies. Because <laughs> yeah. well, you know, I, I feel like for me, the medium that I have found through writing has it's better suited for more fun supplemental stuff, which is the children's books. When I'm getting into the hard meat of it, audio and video are really where it's at to truly communicate. I feel like not that business books are going away because I read them. Well, I do a lot of audio books, but I just feel that as far as for business books, um, it, they're going to become less, less common. Um, mm -hmm. I, and I just like the medium formats of podcast and video for that. Whereas true life stories, like we're talking about here in print is incredible and amazing. I agree. I, yep. You're preaching to the choir here for everybody listening to. Well, why don't you, we'll, we'll end with that. Why don't you tell everybody where they can find your podcast? I don't think I even mentioned the name of it. It's Business Bites. Is that correct? That is correct. So everything is at rachelbranke.com. That's kind of the mothership website. You can find the Business Bites podcast and also splits out to my pet advocacy foundation I have, as well as the other legal niche blogs that I blog and video blog on. Oh, look at you. You have your fingers in so many different pots. I am so impressed with you. <laughs> well, Rachel, thank you. And honestly, I would love to have you on again sometime because I think there, I think we've only just, uh, you know, scraped the surface of, of what we can talk about. Um, but I appreciate your time. And I think people are really going to be able to take some of this. And, you know, hopefully, they, hopefully they took your advice. And they were jotting down notes as you <laughs> talked. Um, I, I think it's going to be very helpful for a lot of people. Well, thank you. And if you guys have any questions at all, please feel free to reach out. I'm more than happy to help direct you to resources. I talk very fast. I'm from the East Coast. So if you need to slow the podcast down or re-listen, that's a good tip also. 
Okay. All right, Rachel. Well, take care and thank you very much. Thanks. Have a good one. And that does it for our interview with Rachel Branke. I hope there were some good ideas that you can take back to improve your own business. I jotted down some notes to myself. I'm set up as an LLC, but I think that I need to do my own little personal audit to make sure that everything is in order. For links to Rachel's website and everything else that we mentioned, go to the show notes at thelifestorycoach.com and look for episode 43. And remember to send in your form if you want to be on the free directory. You'll find a link in the show notes, today's show notes, for episode 43. And you'll also find a link to a form that you can give me all of your information that you want as part of your listing. That other link is on the main page of the website. It's free. It's just a way for me to help connect clients to the life story professionals who can help them. And if you'd like to help me connect with more listeners, please consider leaving a review on iTunes. It helps raise awareness of the podcast, but also it helps get the word out there about our industry in general. People can't hire us if they don't know that we're here to help them. My last bit of news, I haven't decided for sure, but I may be taking a little break from the podcast just for over the holidays. So if you don't see an episode for the next mm, couple weeks or so. Don't think that it's gone for good. I will be back definitely by the beginning of next year and maybe even sooner. I haven't decided on that. I am also filling out my editorial calendar for next year's shows. So if any listeners are interested in coming onto the podcast as a guest to talk about how they do life stories, to talk about the business or the craft side of things, shoot me an email or leave me a note in the comments section of today's episode. Again, that's episode 43. I'm Amy Woods Butler, personal historian and life story writer, and your coach for building your own professional life story business. Thanks for listening. Happy holidays. And until next time, go out and save someone's story.